hopefully it should be <clears throat> very clear at least by now that when we use a word like image we're indicating something I'm indicating something much more in the scope of that than we uh, is indicated might be indicated by a word like metaphor <clears throat> so an image in the way that I'm using it is much more than a metaphor at least the way we tend to use the word metaphor uh, nowadays so <clears throat> looking up that word metaphor in, in uh, my dictionary it gives an example he is a lion in battle as, as an example of a metaphor he is a lion in battle but that kind of that's not really an image so much as you might as well say well he's very ferocious uh, when it comes to fighting you could just simply replace it with an adjective such as ferocious or whatever it's not an image um, in the way that um, I mostly want to indicate uh, and, and open up the meaning of that word image um, in the metaphor like uh, as, as is used that way um, that doesn't have the sense of aliveness uh, that this image, this imaginal figure has some kind of life and autonomy even of its own some kind of reality um, uh, an importance uh, a depth and richness of its own being if you like and uh, what it fertilizes in the psyche in terms of uh, the meaningfulness etc um, the, the love that can pass between <clears throat> the self and the imaginal figure, the, the sense of necessity and the demand that, uh, or demands that imaginal figures can seem to bring to us or offer to us, give to us, place on us. None of that is really there in, in a metaphor, in the way that we usually use the word metaphor. So an image is much, much more than a metaphor. And so, Going into this a little bit further, what I want to um, uh, explore a little bit further, open out a bit more, is um, these aspects of the imaginal, um, the aspects of love and necessity and demand from imaginal figures. The way they might love us, the way they might place demands on us or seem to. So we use those words. Uh, love, necessity, demand, and we sense them as we're, as we're working with images in imaginal practice on or off the cushion. Uh, sensing um, a demand, sensing their love, sensing the necessity of this imaginal figure or um, image. So we sense it, and as I've already said, and, and we also acknowledge, we also recognize that it's sensed and it's given this sense. We, we give, um, through our way of looking through the conceptual framework, we give uh, the sense of demand to the image that we then feel from the image. In other words, the, the, the conceptual framework and the way of looking um, constellate the sense of, of the demand, of the love, of the necessity. We sense it and we know that it's given by the way of looking. It's never independent of, of the way of looking of the conceptual framework. So we understand, yes, dependent arising, yes, empty. But there's power there in that balance of understanding. Uh, 
we're not saying, ah, it's not real because I'm just making it up. And nor are we losing sight of the fact that it's um, a dependent arising, dependent on the mind, conceptual framework, way of looking. Right there, in that middle way, there's a lot of power and aliveness without the concreteness and the literalizing and the tightening around uh, sort of fundamentalist beliefs around all this stuff. And again, it, I would say it's impossible to prove. How would you even begin to prove that this um, imaginal figure is, is, so to speak, really placing a demand on me or really loves me or whatever? We're not now in the realm of the provable. We're not relating to this um, in terms of its... Uh, in terms of its reality status, in the way that we would relate to um, a scientific reality. We're not approaching it that way in terms of propositions that are provable or not by experiment or this or that. So the kind of truth, the kind of reality these um, images have are not, if you like, scientific-style truths. Scientific-style realities, at least classical science pre quantum and all that. Um, they're not even quantum style uh, truths, realities. It's more like art. The whole thing is more like art. We're not in the realm of the provable. We're entertaining conceptual frameworks and seeing uh, what effects, what opens, what is given birth to, what is um, fertilized which direction do things go in when I entertain this conceptual framework and uh, entertain the idea of love and demand from the imaginal figures? So we can, as I said before, entertain different conceptual frameworks and we could entertain the idea, hold the conceptual framework in regard to an image that this image represents um, this or that quality or aspect of being that is not yet available to myself. It's something that I haven't yet developed in myself or grown into or whatever. And this quality, whatever it is, um, uh, psychological quality, or um, will be helpful to me and balancing for me, balance out other qualities that are available to me that maybe are too strong, etc. And in a way, the image represents something that is for the growth of the self, the psychological or spiritual growth of the self. And, and in that sense, they can be integrated. So many <clears throat> contemporary psychologists would approach imaginal work with uh, work with the imagination with that kind of conception, and it's really, really um, uh, okay and fine. And if that's what you feel comfortable with, go for it. Um, but as I also uh, pointed out many times, you know there are, there will be limits to that kind of view. There are limits to that kind of view. It's a, it's a limited and limiting view if we only conceive of images that way. So certainly sometimes that's a perfectly helpful and appropriate way, but there's also um, other po there are also other possibilities which to me are more radical and more interesting. So, yes, fine to look at it that way, um, and, but it's not the only way. Uh, to regard things only that way would be limited and limiting. 
sometimes uh, a spontaneous image arises for a person with loving demands. And those loving demands are clearly healing for the human self. There's so many examples I could um, share of that. Um, the demand from the image is something that's um, clearly in the service of, of the human self and, and the growth that way. So someone on retreat, was quite a while ago now, a few years, and they were sharing um, something of their history and then what happened in, in, in their meditation. <clears throat> when they were, excuse me, when they were a little girl, and this is in the early 1950s, and they had uh, a serious accident. I don't know exactly what happened. They had a serious accident and were in hospital for um, some weeks, in hospital, strapped down, immobile, on the hospital bed. And in the early 50s, uh, the sort of way, way the medical system worked there was if a child was in hospital, they would not let the parents visit. So the parents were not allowed to visit her. She was very young, um, in hospital, strapped down, um, immo immobile on the bed. And then decades later, decades later in meditation here, um, she heard a voice, so to speak. She was told to stand up from the meditation and then lie down. So she did that. And then the the image or the sense, uh, it was a more kinesthetic sense rather than visual, the sense of someone untying, loosening and cutting her restraints, the restraints that were strapping her down on the bed. And it was both gentle, this, this undoing, and also forceful at times. Sometimes it was gentle, sometimes it was forceful. But there was a great sense of release in that, the release from being strapped down in that. Very, very powerful. And then afterwards was sitting outside, outside of the meditation, sitting looking at the um, at the trees and the grass. Um, and there were tears. The, the healing uh, was really flowing in her being. And tears were there. And an image of a baby held, protected, um, loved, um, peaceful, in a peaceful holding, totally content. And she stayed with that uh, and the beauty of that image. And so she could actually feel uh, and taste uh, the, a, a drop of breast milk on her lips. So sweet, she said, so beautiful. So here's an image very much related to a memory and the demand, stand up, lie down, and then this undoing, very, very much in on the... Um, dimension, if you like, of, of the human self and the healing of the human self of past uh, wounding trauma, if you, if you like. Or, uh, to give another example, uh, and I think I might have mentioned this in another talk, another tree, I can't remember, but someone was uh, relating to me, they were a long-term student of Thich Nhat Hanh, and um, had exposure to him through film and meeting him and t his teachings, etc., over the years, and felt um, 
the, the, the image of him and the felt sense of him, she said, I could feel it in my body. Uh, but really, what was the specificity about this image in, in, this, sense, in this case of, of Tignat Han was the sense of his inner authority. And that, that inner authority that he had in his being coming out of his uh, devotion and alignment to continual uh, devotion and alignment over the years to what was important to him, what was deeply most important to him. And that sense of his inner authority in the image, through the image, helped her to connect to hers. And with that was this sense of a loving demand, um, a sense of Thich Nhat Hanh expecting her, that was her words, expecting her to step into that authority for herself, the authority, if you like, over her mind um, and the authority um, to over what is being chosen, what she chose to cultivate in the present moment, Awake, wakefulness, care, loving-kindness, aliveness, etc. Um, so this benign authority uh, was constellated in the image of Thich Nhat Hanh with this loving demand from, from his image. Uh, and she felt that aspect, that loving demand, work on her. It was doing something in her being. And uh, very, very helpful on, on her path. So certainly sometimes the loving demands come from the images and they're operating very much for the, for, the, for the growth of the human, if you like. But, but as I said, we need to be a bit careful here. Sometimes what happens is, uh, if you like, the ego, if we, if we use that word, makes, wants to make a demand of the image. So the demand is from me to the image. Someone was sharing of this image of a tramp, um, and they could see that they weren't a tramp in their life at all. But but they could see there was something of that outcast and the loneliness and the isolation and the being shut out and the being impoverished and the being looked down on and the disdain um, that they uh, that constellated as this image, and, and that they could also see. Um, some, somehow the mirroring in their life of that and the impulse very understandable of this uh, of this of this man in, in relation to this image who hadn't done a lot of imaginal work was actually oh well let's invite that tramp into the um, he's, there was an image he's looking through a window onto a family gathering and it's all cozy and warm with the fire there etc and he's outside looking in something he's shut out of and very understandable the inclination was let's let's let him in there or let's give him a friend or let's um, uh, give him better clothes or something bring him in from the cold you know maybe that's important in a way um, that movement, the movement of the demand from the self to the image at times. But yet, as he was telling me about this image, I was also struck by the fact that, say in the image of Christ, Christ is also something of a, a, a destitute, a wanderer, an outcast. There's something um, about the holiness of the image itself. Somehow in this tramp, maybe if I look deeper, I see Christ. 
and it doesn't need to suddenly then become shiny and radiant and um, uh, clean all the dirt off his clothes and his face, etc. It's something in the complexity, the poor one, the outcast, the, the one looked down on is the Christ, is the Holy One. Very easily, that's it's hard for the ego to understand that. It's hard for the usual self you to understand that, and especially when it's um, connected or one feels the pain of the mirroring of this image in one's life. And so I want things to be different. It's complex, complex. Um, but really, what I'm saying is, one has to, one is tricky here to be sensitive to what are the um, demands of the image and what are they serving? What are they serving? And if I make demands on the image, what is that serving? And who is that serving? And who is it healing? I don't think there's a right and a wrong here. And um, certainly in talking with this person, I was very tentative. I did not, uh, I didn't know. I was just voicing something really. So yes, sometimes be careful of the demand from the self to the to the image, um, but it's it's tricky. And sometimes what happened what happens is a person um, is is in the image that's happening that, that is going on is themselves. One sees oneself as an image or in an in imaginal um, interaction in a constellation, but one has entered it so fully that one has actually become part of the image. The self sense has become an imaginal self, um, different differently, and then the demand from that imaginal self is is maybe. Um, not so, uh, not so much the usual self ego demand. So, as an example, um, someone was telling me not too long ago, they were on a retreat where the teacher was actually leading a compassion guided meditation, and actually using um, or, or offering as a possibility that one could use a figure like um, Avalokiteshvara or Kuan Yin or Jesus. Um, uh, and, and see them, imagine them as the source of the compassion. And the teacher said at one point in this guided meditation, if it feels okay, put this person, this deity or human person that's the source of the compassion, put them behind you in space so that they are radiating to you from from behind. From They're radiating that compassion to you from, from the direction behind. Now, for this person um, sharing with me, um, it, it, that image of Avalokiteshvara or Jesus behind soon became her lover. It was the image of her lover behind her, and 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 then a, a, a lot of eros, uh, an erotic charge, came into the whole um, image, and then her lover was entering her sexually. And then, actually took a whole other level, then the lover was removing her skin, she said, like unzipping her skin and peeling her skin off and plunging his hands into her blood and her flesh and pulling her heart out and putting it in his mouth. And she said this was this felt incredibly blissful, uh, not grotesque or scary, but very, very blissful. And in that case, she, if you like, felt and saw an image of herself, but she was, she was, she had become image. Herself had um, entered into the image fully, 
So she said to her lover in the image, take me apart, take me apart in this kind of physical, erotic, loving way. And the lover took out one of her eyes and then the other, um, and I think again placed it in his mouth. So she was feeling that she was being emptied in this way. The lover was emptying her in this way, very blissful, very erotic. And that was happening, if you like, from behind. And in front of her was the image of her, in this case, her brother and his suffering. And if you like what she said, his density, um, uh, density of being in his suffering in comparison with the bliss and the emptiness that she was feeling through this erotic compassion that was coming through. And that bliss and emptiness came into contact with the suffering of her brother in the image, like like a healing contact of compassion, like we've talked about. Uh, it's the contact, the putting in connection of the, the healing qualities with the suffering. Um, but there wasn't much um, conscious will going on. It was almost like this was just happening, this movement from behind with the eros suffusing the compassion and the emptying out and the bliss and all that was coming into contact with the the person suffering and, and as a stream of compassion with a particular flavor. So there's lots there actually in that image and I hope, I hope in the not too distant future to, to <clears throat> talk a lot more about, particularly about eros in relation to the imaginal. Um, but really the point there was that Although sometimes we need to be careful of the demands of the self towards an image, if we still want to retain the, the soulfulness aspect, the soul-making aspect, as opposed to the prioritizing of the self-growth aspect. Um, sometimes we need to be careful about the demands of the self to the image, but sometimes what happens is one sees oneself as image, or one is so much in the image that one can trust the demands and say, take me apart, that was the demand of the self, take me apart to this um, lover and the eros of the situation, the sort of uh, holy uh, fleshiness of the situation, erotic, um, dismembering and emptying. One could, in that case, trust that demand of the self because, because one was so, um, if you like, the self was so much part of the fabric of the image. It wasn't the usual self-stance. Sometimes we feel or sense a demand uh, from an image, from an imaginal figure, and it can feel like it's stretching us to um, accept that demand, to bow to it, to take it on. Uh, feels like it stretches us. There's some kind of trial there. It involves maybe a trial and there's the discomfort of being stretched and, and the kind of um, trial of that. So maybe, maybe um, the image and the imaginal figure what's implicit there in the demand or what they, where they take us, or just being in contact with them, um, they take us beyond the circumference of the world that we know and the social scene that we know or the dharma scene that we know or the uh, 
culture or community um, that, that whose ideas and whose um, range of acceptable behavior and uh, the whole sort of worldview of that culture might take us beyond that. We might move on. The image is showing us something, pulling us towards something, um, and that we're moving out, breaking through the circumference, the uh, limits of that world view and that culture and that community, moving on. Um, and so there might be, from if that's the case, as it is in some cases, a kind of loneliness on the human or social level that comes out of the demand or, um, if you like, taking on or accepting the demand of an image. And sometimes it's the opposite. It might be uh, that actually something in this image is calling us in to more relationship where we actually feel like, oh, that would be too much work or too much hassle or I don't really feel inclined to enter deeper into um, the community that way and, and take up a certain position in the community of um, responsibility or centrality or something. But there's a demand, generally speaking, and it can be that it feels quite a stretch. Something in us is being stretched, again, beyond the usual range of, let's say, the self or the ego, if we use, use those words. And again, to, to, to really make this clear, the, the demand, a demand like that, or any demand, is not inherent in the image, really. Um, it, we are choosing a conceptual framework when we talk about demands this way. Uh, we're, we're choosing a conceptual framework, choosing to adopt a conceptual framework that nourishes, deepens, enriches, widens, um, supports soulfulness, soul-making, and the beauty and the meaningfulness and all of that. So that's really what we're doing. It's not inherent, this demand. We're choosing a conceptual framework that, that um, incorporates that. A conceptual framework that supports the soul-making, that nourishes the soul-making. And a conceptual framework then when, when images and archetypes are somehow bigger than the self. Rather than being in the self, as I said before, they're bigger than the self. There's something something in some way kind of eternal, or better to say timeless, about them, about these imaginal figures. Something in some way autonomous about them. Something in some way, in some particular way, real. They have a kind of reality and a kind of divinity. So I'm aware these are all loaded words, loaded concepts. But that we, we are adopting consciously a conceptual framework that entertains lightly those kind of views. And that with all that, uh, they have demands. And that's part of the conceptual view that we're entertaining. And that the self serves them rather than the other way around. That these imaginal figures, or archetypal figures, or daemons are in the service of the self. So this is this is tricky, you know, in many in many ways. And again, to point out that um, entertaining or allowing a notion of demand from the imaginal figure, it needs this um, this view of liquidity, this alchemical maxim of "do not proceed until everything has turned to liquid." That needs to be there um, in in the sense of. Uh, 
we see that way, we see the liquidity, the emptiness, in other words, the insubstantiality of this, um, in order to have the right relationship with this notion of demand as part of our conceptual framework. So it's not literal, and the ego is not getting too um, kind of stuck on this and, and uh, relating to it too literally. Just, it's, it is, I keep using this word tricky, I think um, uh, there's a real... A, a real subtle middle way here, as I said. Someone was telling me, um, uh, this is again some years ago, um, a woman was sharing in an interview her, well, she was talking about her past, past lovers and things and a sense of resentment at not being met by lovers equally. And I was, it's more, what, what, in what way do you, do you not, have you felt not met equally? And she explained that, um, well, she explained a bit about that, and she also shared that from quite an early age in her life, she, she was aware that she was very attractive to many men, and also that she had sort of, what would you say, um, an intuitive wisdom, a deep sensitivity in the areas of um, the erotic and the romantic. It was she was in her element in that, and deeply attractive to, to, to as I said, to many men. And so she, it, it's almost like we were talking. So it's almost like she is. She was sort of an embodiment of Aphrodite, the goddess of love and and and, and the erotic, etc., and erotic love, um, and almost um, that that she was. Uh, what, as as this um, this figure within her, this thing, this goddess, if you like, that was coming through, let's call her Aphrodite, um, it wanted um, wanted the, her beauty and her sensitivity and intuitive wisdom in regards to love and eros and sensuality, etc. It wanted that to be seen, to be recognised, and even a little bit to be worshipped. Now. How close that is to a kind of um, ego wanting those things, um, ego wanting to be seen and to be as regarded as beautiful and to be even worshipped, and we think, what an ego trip. Maybe, maybe some of that gets mixed into this kind of thing at times, but maybe something else is coming through at times that is in the nature of, in this case, the, the, the divinity that was coming through, or the, the imaginal figure that was coming through. And I'll return to this uh, later. The part of that is... It's not um, an ego thing when that's wanting to be recognized. It's like if you, if you say God wants to be recognized, the soul wants to be seen, something of holiness here wants to be seen, and that's different than a purely ego wanting or craving. This is a very, very tricky, and, and sometimes you get these things mixed, uh, perhaps, perhaps more often um, than we might think. We tend to dismiss something as ego. No, have a, have, a, have a closer look, sense more deeply, more soulfully into what's going on. So all this brings up the question, what is healing? When we talk about healing in the, all these different ways, what do we mean? What does that word mean? Or who is healed? What is healed? What is freed? 
who is being freed and healed? The ego or something else? I'm going to return to this actually. Just put that question out. Put that question out now. What do we mean by healing? Who is being healed? What is being healed? What is being freed? Sometimes with the demand that we feel from an image, that we sense from the image, um, it's actually often quite subtle. Uh, It might be, and I've mentioned this before, it might be just to behold the imaginal figure, just to witness the imaginal figure. There's nothing else other than to behold it, to stay with it, to look at it, to sense it, to feel into it. And in so doing, in doing that, the the soulfulness is um, is nurtured and enriched and deepened and expanded. The psyche is expanded because the soulfulness is, is expanded, and, and the range of image uh, is expanded. And with that, the love of of this image, eros, is expanded, and and the conceptual framework is also expanded, as, as we talked about the other way, the other day. So with all that libido, and I, I mean that more in the sense of the, the the whole psychic energy that's available in the whole system, not just the sexual energy. The libido also grows just from beholding and witnessing an image and seeing its beauty and feeling our love for it and feeling its holiness and the meaningfulness and the soulfulness. Something is fertilizing the psyche, the eros and the logos. All of that gets expanded. And usually this is very gradual. It's a gradual movement. And gradually the sense of sacredness, of meaningfulness expands it's deepened, it's enriched. Again, I'm going to come back to this uh, soon in, in another talk. But partly through just, um, just uh, engaging imaginal practice meditatively, something starts gradually expanding. The sense of sacredness um, starts spilling over into life. Life becomes multi-leveled. We start feeling life and sensing it, perceiving life as richer, more more sacredness and meaningfulness everywhere, multi-dimensional. As a gradual movement, so the demand can that seems to go with an image can often be very subtle, but it's powerful in 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 its gradual effect. Just beholding, just witnessing. Sometimes the love and demand from an image is not obvious. Uh, it's much more implicit, if you like. So I remember. Um, some well, it wasn't too long ago, a uh, year and a half or something, um, and was had, had mostly finished writing um, my my book on emptiness, and um, so the, the a huge amount of work with that and uh, that that involved, and uh, and had sent away to the um, the publisher. Uh, uh, the the the, the um, manuscript etc. and got the proofs back and it was so full of mistakes that they had made um, and formatting errors etc. and um, 
in the meditation, I was again, I was curious to explore the whole relationship with writing the book from a more, um, from the perspective of imaginal practice rather than just emptiness practice, which I already knew quite well. Um, and so in the meditation, I had this figure who had come um, really quite relatively often in the course of writing the book. It was a master sculptor in a sort of underground cave, a master sculptor and his apprentice. And I, I tended in the image to, to be more in the position of the apprentice to this master sculptor. And um, the master communicates in, in some way. It wasn't quite a, a, a verbal dialogue. He communicates. He, one has to finish it nearly there. So he's talking about the sculptor, but this is a very clear example of how it's mirroring, um, in this case, something that's in my life, the writing of the book. Um, one has to finish it nearly there. And he is, this master sculptor, is, is basically a perfectionist. Um, and he has to be. And that is the kind of, if you like, the moral code, the ethos of um, masters and apprentices like these. He... Um, pushes the apprentice to the limit. He's quite stern and um, uh, he's not a pushover. He's, 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 he sets uh, tasks and limits and he's very firm with it. And that's the moral code and, and the moral code of perfectionism as well. And there's a lot of power in that in a good way. There's a lot of energy in that. And, and he's, if you like, communicating, you, you do it right. You do it as perfect as possible and to the highest standard possible. And that's just what we do. That's how we do things. And there's a big rock to be the, uh, the, the, to, either to be carved or, or he's ha half carving it into a sculpture. Um, he's sort of a little way through it. It's a big rock there and he touches it and brushes the carving dust from it with his fingers that's left there. And sometimes it feels like that rock is my body. Somehow he is, through this relationship, carving me and carving my body. And in this case, as I said, this is one of those images where there is a very clear, or seemed to be a very clear parallel between what was happening in, in the life and the image. And I sort of ask in a non-verbal way about time and rushing, having so much other work and commitments to do and wanting to move on. He said, um, I'm wanting to move on to other, other work and other explorations. And he said, it, it doesn't matter as long as it's done well. It doesn't matter how long it takes. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. So there's a clear demand there. Um, the love that was there is much more implicit. It's not obvious. And even as I'm relating to that, I'm aware that it doesn't sound like there's much love there. But there was a real love there. Um, it's just not the obvious kind of love, and it's not getting stated so explicitly. But this master loves his apprentice and cares for him and is really sculpting him, shaping him through love. It's just a, a certain quality or, um, if you like, ca character of love. That love has a certain uh, mode of expression that's particular to it and unique to it. It's, and it's implicit in the image. It's not obvious. Another image, um, that, that, or another imaginal figure that kind of visits uh, relatively often for me is John Coltrane. So it's a clearly a historical figure and someone I, I uh, love very much. 
and he comes to me sometimes when I'm meditating and curiously always sits in the same place in my room um, just in front and a little bit to the left and facing me um, on a ledge and uh, and sometimes he's um, in terms of work or creative output or, or things of different kinds he's, he's much more um, gently but firmly encouraging as something about him just his physical presence a very sort of heavy set strong African American figure in his body and there's something about his resolution and his commitment to his path and the force that came through him and everything that cost him and his steadiness with that um, over the years short life actually he died when he was 40 um, and there's something in him communicating um, w with a kind of kindness and um, encouraging me uh, gently and firmly so there the love is obvious the demand was actually more implicit because um, it, it was coming through a more gentle and uh, encouraging mode but it was actually it was uncompromising it's like the, you know you don't just uh, give in or stop just because something is difficult or it's challenging or people don't understand or this or that so he also got a lot of uh, it was difficult for him as his music became more um, if you like avant-garde etc and people didn't understand so sometimes the love is, is not so obvious it's implicit whereas the demand is obvious sometimes the um, demand is more implicit less obvious where the love seems more obvious and sometimes the demand that an image seems to convey to us communicate to us um, it, it feels strong and obvious but it's not necessarily um, practically clear what it means or what it implies or what it's totally practically asking for so do you remember um, some days ago I shared the image of the person listening to the public lecture and feeling that actually what was being said was quite stupid and offensive um, but yet that she felt that most of the people in the other room were thinking that it was brilliant and then suddenly this huge phoenix appears and fills the room with its magnificence and nobility and she, she shared some more just specifically about the demand which I'd, I'd like to share with you and I can't remember if I actually if this is from an email that she I don't remember or, and I just these are exactly her words or if I wrote it down after we met um, and so it's slightly paraphrased but let's say these are her words the bird showing up that way could easily sound like a revenge fantasy of sorts and there certainly was raging going on but when I feel into it, this is her talking, when I feel into it, it's as if the phoenix isn't really concerned about engaging in dialogue with stupidity at all. In other words, it doesn't want to revenge or make this person look stupid publicly or anything like that. She said, it's not even insouciant. It's not even like it's totally carefree. It's just that by its very presence, it's seeing through and manifesting a different stance than uh, what was sort of being broadcast publicly by this speaker. It's manifesting a different stance and it's changing everything just by being there. And then this is the bit about the demand. It feels like it's asking me to behold it 
to bear witness to the beauty. Or not only bear witness, it, for the, it feels like for the beauty, it wants the beauty to be burnt into and carried by my heart. So somehow it's asking me to witness it, and somehow in that it wants the, it wants the beauty to be burnt into and carried by by my heart. This is this is uh, her words. And there's a very profound sense, she said, of being asked to serve, and I'm not sure what that means. Again, sometimes it's not strong, but it's not really clear what it means. And, she goes on, and to exercise discernment. The demand is to exercise discernment. And it's asking me to be bold, she said. It's asking me to be bold. So all these demands are implicit and strongly communicated um, and very touching and all part of the beauty. But they're not exactly clear where they apply or what they mean or how what their broader sort of... Um, rippling out effect or expression in the life is manifestation in life. It's not practically clear. And then, as I said, sometimes the demand is just to behold, just to honor and see, if you like, the divinity of something or the beauty of something, to honor that that we're witnessing. Somehow, in my life, I'm honoring this imaginal figure and everything that they communicate and bear and are and express. And sometimes um, it might be that we we are called to um, act in life, in our life, or choose um, or tread a certain path. Sometimes it actually does have physical, man- or it bears fruit in some physical manifestation, physical form or other, or ex- physical expression or other. Sometimes it's just honoring something in the soul, so to speak. That's the demand. And sometimes we're actually needing to manifest and express something. It's, again, tricky. Um, Sometimes difficult to discern or feel into what's, what's being demanded here. And if it's an acting and a choosing in life, um, then what is the exact expression? As we said, really to be careful with the kind of literal, concretized um, uh, ex, you know, mimicking of, of what the image is. So if it's asking for something to be acted on or, or chosen in my life, I need to make a certain choice to manifest something. What is that? So some images seem to want that, and some images don't seem to need that. It's on another level of just the honoring. But if it's the acting, it needs a, a physical manifestation somehow, then what? And what about the ethics involved? So again, this is, I keep using this word tricky, this is complex. A rich territory to explore, not an easy, simple discernment and exploration. So sometimes we might be tempted to say, um, let's put the ethics primary, let's put the ethics very clear as a sort of boundary and framework and basis, um, and let's make those primary, not the images primary, and then we feel that's safer. And then that, I think there is, and there may be, a real wisdom in, in, in adopting that kind of stance, or that kind of position. But even that, um, I, think, I think we're sometimes can be sometimes a little naive or, or at least unaware how much um, 
our ethical responses or our absence or lack of ethical responses in life is shaped by fantasy and mythos. So I remember some years ago giving a talk just about this, uh, the necessity of fantasy, actually trying to point out that, um, if you like, it's the mythos, the fantasy, that shapes the ethos, the ethics. So that, it's really changed now, but some years ago one could have looked at the Dharma scene, or it's changing, let's say, one could have looked at the Dharma scene and, and seen why, why is there so little response or um, in, to the global environmental catastrophes and the um, problem of climate change? Why is there so little Dharma response to that? Or so little um, even acknowledgement that that needs to get included in, in what we mean by uh, Dharma practice and ethics, etc.? Why is it that so few Dharma people are um, speaking up and taking a stand and being bold with that? And I think that's a very complex question. <coughs> There's lots involved there. And as I said, it's definitely changing um, in the years since then. But um, one of the reasons, maybe, is be- because of the, the dominant Dharma um, fantasies, if you like, that are more towards equi- that are more in the line with the figure of uh, figures of equanimity and and non uh, non action, not getting involved, not getting um, the, the the revolutionary is not such a has not been such a dominant. Um, myth or fantasy or Im- imaginal figure in in the range of myths that that are present in the Dharma that fertilize the Dharma, and because of that, that, that there it limits the range of responses or the range of even what's included. So this is this is interesting. You know the whole relationship between um, let's say mythos and ethos, imaginal figures and fantasies and ethics. You know, what happens with terrorists, you could say, well, they they really um, have all this imaginal stuff going and the sense of demand and um, duty and all that. The problem there is they're not understanding it as image. They're not seeing image as image. So jihad, holy war, is a completely literalized concept. Not actually seeing it as a poetic image is something that one actually acts on um, in in a in a totally literal way. That's a fundamentalist belief going on there in regard to images, completely um, unaware of the 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 soul element of this, if you like, and seeing image as image. So, what happens if we trust? This view, this seeing image as image, and so we use um, the energy body as 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 a navigator, as I've explained. So there's a lot here. We're touching on what we've touched on before about trust and that, and navigating, navigating all this, and and learning to trust. And as I said, so often um, scary images turn out to be real treasures. That black devil man was around for decades. Is still around. He 
has become much less scary because the the um, the practitioner she isn't she's no longer scared of him she's kind of um, learned to, to trust him but he hasn't through that become some kind of simple desexualized nice guy he's still the black devil man but he's an ally something deeply important and uh, trustable there or the black hag figure that I shared the other day from someone else she retains that black hag character but she's no longer scary so they're not what they seem at first images and again the way of looking affects how they unfold and how they shape always, always that dependent arising dependent on the mind and the way of looking so seeing image as image knowing image as image and if you like entertaining this assumption of their benevolence um, very crucial these aspects of the way of looking they really are very helpful in allowing the image to um, grow if you like uh, and and fulfill its potential you could say that seeing the image as image and the assumptions of benevolence are the part of the fabrication the shaping of the image there just like as we pointed out in a nightmare and then there's also this again we talk, talked about this the other day but there's this sense of trusting the archetypal necessity in the image the, the, this treasure um, perhaps at, and trusting an archetypal necessity eventually at the center of um, pathological behavior at the core of it might be something archetypal perhaps addiction or some kind of other inclination or whatever sometimes in something like that it's actually we could say in the, the terms of classical um, mythology it's Dionysus sometimes the wild god of uh, wine and ecstasy. And Dionysus has certain demands. What are the demands? And do they need acting on? And what happens when I see image as image? And what happens when I feel it more in the body? And what needs acting on? And what can just be honoured? But sometimes in that sort of thing, it's too simple to say that's always it. I'm not saying that's always at the core of, say, alcoholic addiction. I don't mean to imply that at all. But sometimes there's something like that. Some other god, if you like, or archetypal necessity at the center of something that looks just a mess of pathology. Something else is going on there. There's other demands that are not being, actually, they're not being seen in the right way and honored. What happens if if that's the case, and if a person feels into that and feels into it with everything that we've been talking about with imaginal practice, all the richness and the nuance and the sensitivity of practicing with that and the conceptual framework, seeing image as image and using the energy body and trusting it and recognizing an archetypal necessity, just that view, what might that do in relation to the pathological behavior or the addiction or whatever? Some of you will know one of the things that keeps addictions spinning, keeps the loop of addiction spinning, one ingredient there is shame. It's part of the vicious cycle. So typically an addict um, will engage in, in their addiction, whatever, and then afterwards feel shame. And that shame actually is very difficult to bear and um, propels 
um, another cycle of addictive behavior. It's almost like what they call acting out. Because the shame is very hard to tolerate. And one, one gets caught in this self-fulfilling um, sort of uh, prophecy, if you like, about what, what, how useless one is or what a bad person one is. Addiction, behavior leads to shame, shame leads to more addiction behavior, just looping like that. But if if sometimes a person can recognize the beauty, the unusual beauty, the unusual treasure, the unusual archetypal necessity, or God, if you like, the God at the center of that pathology, and the demands of that God, and honor what that is, who that is, then that that, if you like, dissolves a lot of the shame. Because what was seen as shameful has actually now becomes, come to be seen as divine. Completely different. And then that causes um, a, a different, it opens a different, uh, the possibility of a different way of relating with the whole, um, the whole addictive pattern and everything that's included there. The shame is gone, and the shame as what propels this vicious cycle might be uh, dissolved a little bit and replaced with something much more deeply, deeply respectful. And that might have uh, a big effect in terms of the suffering there. So these may be, for a lot of people, unusual kind of views, this trusting, this deeply trusting the treasure that an image is, even if it looks weird um, or pathological or dark or whatever it is, or even trusting the archetypal necessity running through what looks um, a mess or uh, fucked up or whatever in our life. Sometimes artists sense this easier or, 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 or can sense this kind of um, what's operating um, in, in their psyche or in the psyche, can sense that easier sometimes than other people. So Picasso uh, said at one point, painting is stronger than I am. It does what it wants with me. There's a sense, and I, you know, if you also read some of the writings, not, not the poems, but of, of T.S. Eliot or Rilke or other, other poets, there's really the sense of something bigger, um, if you like, making a demand on the being. And, and the way that is not always necessarily, necessarily so easy, but it feels important. So again, to say again, with the, these things, uh, these imaginal figures, they have a certain autonomy, but autonomy, um, and so the autonomy to be able to make a demand, if you like, but that is not quite the same as saying they're completely independent. So that black devil man we were just talking about. Um, well, we've seen we've seen instances I've shared where where an image surprises one. I could never have thought of that. Uh, and so there's a, there's a, an indication of the image's autonomy there. But for example, that black devil man um, came again in an image uh, and had her back to this uh, meditator. And then he turned around towards her, and in her imagination, she took one step towards him. This is uh, more recently, years after the more difficult relationships with him, and took a step, took one step towards him. Um, him she did in her imagination, but he um, kept her away with the palm of his hand and, and an outstretched arm uh, on her sternum, very firm, 
keep keep your distance. And this was very perplexing to her. It was something that he he suddenly did, um, um, re- and she realized oh, he he's really not in my control. He's not wholly in my control. There's an autonomy here, but autonomy doesn't, as I said, necessarily mean independence. Um, independent from the mind or the way of looking. Nothing is independent of the mind and the way of looking. Um, that gesture of his was also contingent on her gesture of stepping towards him. So there's autonomy, but that's not the same as being independent and having an independent existence, independent of the view that's entertained or of the actions of the self in relation to the image. But this... Um, sense we have of of imaginal figures and uh, the conceptual framework there um, very potentially very powerful very radical so a retreatant said to me a little while ago we are doors she said we are doors for what wants to come through we are doors for what wants to come through and again it's a way of looking a conceptual framework that's being entertained in, the, in, in saying that or realizing that, um, and in that conceptual framework, the human self is somehow um, less than or within the imaginal figure. The imaginal figure is somehow um, more. We are just the door for what wants to come through. Even more radically put, Henri Corbin um, used to say, it's not your individuation that is your task, it's the angel's individuation that is your task. Not your individuation, but the angel's individuation is your task. Individuation was a word he borrowed from Jung, meaning growing into the the fullness of your particular um, unique personality and that um, uh, self-growth implied there. So not your growth, your path, your individuation, but the angel's. That's your task. So again, there's a, there's a shift in view here. We're entertaining a view of the psyche, a view of psychology, a view of the self, a view of the soul, a view of images, um, and also of divinity and, and what is of value. All that is wrapped up in that, um, in that sentence. Not your individuation, but the angel's individuation is your task. So there's this kind of reversal of the usual way of seeing existence and what, what, what the self is and what these imaginal figures are. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.